a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Orla Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. Elissa Jepson is out, so I am flying solo for this episode. And what we're going to do today is talk about the protests in Israel, uh, an Israel now governed by a far-right coalition, and the reflections of that, of the protests, of the far-right coalition, of the politics of it, in um, protests and in right-wing movements in Europe. For several weeks now, Israel has been gripped by a massive wave of protests. At the focal point of public anger is a judicial reform that would give the Israeli parliament, now dominated by a far-right coalition under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, significant powers in appointing justices and limit the Supreme Court's ability to overturn laws. Since coming to power after a parliamentary vote in November 2022, Israel's new government has repeatedly made headlines with incendiary politics that raise questions about issues as fundamental as who in fact is a Jew and provocative moves such as the newly appointed Minister for National Security at Marban Glir's visit to the Temple Mount, a holy site for Jews and Muslims, where the Netanyahu government had pledged to preserve the status quo under which only Muslims are permitted to pray at the site. From the European perspective, Israel's shift to the far right has been concerning, but not unfamiliar. Italy recently elected a right-wing populist government under Giorgio Maloney. Populists in Poland and Hungary have been drawing the ire of the EU and some of their populations for years for chipping away at democratic values such as the rule of law and reproductive rights. Many other European countries have seen a surge of far-right parties and groups. To talk about this, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Alana Bethel. Alana is an historian, a writer, a strategist who has worked as a peacekeeper, a senior advisor for the UN on the Balkans. She's written extensively on issues relating to European security and on geopolitics. She's also a fellow podcaster. Uh, she hosts an excellent podcast series for women in international security called Wise Women Leaders, and I've been privileged to be a guest on that podcast. Alana is a close observer of Europe uh, and of the world, and she has just returned from a trip to Israel. So I am thrilled to have her on to talk about what's going on there and what's going on, well, here in Europe. Alana, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. So, Ilana, why should Europeans care about the protests in Israel? Do they matter? I think there is a number of issues which make them matter, though I would start and preface everything I'm about to say by noting that this is an internal Israeli issue though most of the publication of it abroad has been with regard to the Palestinian issue, within Israel it is um, about the structure of the country and the politics of the country and purely democracy. And that is why it is so relevant to Europe, I would say for two reasons. One of them is, despite everything to do with 
um, the Palestinian issue, with unrest, with a variety of issues surrounding the broader region, Israel is and remains the only functioning democracy, albeit, like many democracies, not uh, perfect, but nonetheless, it is a functioning democracy which um, European allies can rely on. Um, let's put it this way, there's no other country in which you could, in the region, in which for 15 weeks um, you could have hundreds of thousands of people coming out and next day they go to work. In a lot of other countries, they would go out and then they would go to jail. So it is a very, very important linchpin for the West, I would say for sure, and for a lot of other countries in the region. The other reason it's important is simply because it mirrors a lot of the issues that are happening in Europe. Some countries it's more minor, some countries it's more major. But as you mentioned, in Italy, you've already got elected. Uh, um, Giorgia Maloney is a far right. Oh, how far? I don't know. But undoubtedly a right wing uh, to an, a greater extent than um, a lot of others would be considered. In Finland, the new Finns have done well in the elections. Um, in Austria, the far right has re-emerged yet again as an extremely strong force. And you've had lurking for years, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen in, in France. Um, here in Belgium, you have uh, the Vlamsbelang and the NVA in the Flemish uh, um, region. You can go country by country and find that there are very big uh, um, contingents that support some of the policies. They don't see themselves as supporting the far right, but they definitely see themselves as supporting a lot of the policies that far right parties espouse. And are they the same issues? I mean, is an Israeli far right the same thing as a Belgian far right? Uh, do, are, they, are these the same policies? In some cases they are, in some cases they're not. So in Israel, the far right is um, very much to do with um, the question of who is a Jew. And by that, I mean, if, if we have to go down this route, I will very briefly explain to those who are not of the chosen people that um, in the late 18th century, with the, what was known as the Enlightenment and the Emancipation of Jews, um, Moses Mendelssohn created the Reform Movement. He himself was an Orthodox Jew, but nonetheless, he created a Reform Movement, which Orthodox Jews never accepted. Um, and therefore, their definition of who is a Jew is only somebody who is kosher, literally and figuratively in this case, under orthodox rules. Uh, for many Israelis, that's not the case. And this is complicated by the fact that when the state was founded, um, then the decision was to create a situation that mirrored, but in the inverse, the Nuremberg laws. The Nuremberg laws that condemned millions of Jews to uh, um, be murdered in the Holocaust said that three generations back, uh, if there was any Jewish trace, you were a Jew. So therefore, that is mirrored in what is known as the law of return in Israel, that you can come from, for the sake of argument, um, Moldova. And even if your two parents aren't Jewish, but your grandmother on your mother's side was Jewish, because the linear, the line in Judaism is matriarchal, um, you would be Jewish. Or if your grandmother and great-grandmother, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, um, there is an attempt to um, um, move aside from that and to say only who we, the Orthodox, decide are Jews will be the Jews. Alongside that, and that is really a very problematic thing, I will just close that one down because if not, we can spend the whole podcast going backwards and forwards on that. But what I would say is relevant there, by the way, is that this is about religion and however secular Europe is, 
we still live with the remnants of our wars of religion in one way or another. And you can't understand Europe unless you understand who is Protestant and who is Catholic and why this one does things this way and that one does things that way and why school holidays are on certain times and they're not in other times. So that is one issue. Yeah, sorry. And so, I mean, I, I'm thinking, I look at these protests in Israel and they're about judicial changes, reforms, always strikes me as an odd word for this, but judicial changes. And I think about the protests in Poland, right, which were also about about the courts and about who makes these decisions. And there's a big religious theme there too. I mean, so much of what's gone on in Poland has been about reproductive rights, has been about women controlling their bodies. Do you also see these parallels? Of course, I see these parallels. And for what it's worth, apparently the current Israeli government has been consulting with the Polish government about how it dealt with these issues. Um, the, the other one I was going to come to, which explains why there is an intertwine between the religious and the other, is the democratic issue. Now, Israel does not have a second chamber, nor does it have a written constitution. So therefore, its safeguards for balance between the three powers rests on keeping a strong court, keeping a strong judiciary. If not, since, in effect, a government is made from the biggest party in the one chamber that there is, there is no check on the power of the government in one way or another. So, yes, the government calls these judicial changes, but it's it's actually a revolution because if you uh, the, 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 the changes proposed would undermine not only the power of the judiciary, the Supreme Court to uh, criticize and uh, um, draw down uh, laws passed in Parliament as necessary. And this has only happened in very, very rare occasions, by the way. This is not as though, sometimes when you hear the propaganda about this, it's as though the Supreme Court spends every other day, you know, striking down laws. This has happened extremely rarely. But if you don't have a strong judiciary, um, and at the same time, there is an attempt to also change the way in which Supreme Court judges are elected, because currently they're elected by other Supreme Court judges, um, representatives of uh, the legal profession and two politicians. The idea is to change that and only politicians will nominate um, them to the Supreme Court, a la the United States. But the United States has a second chamber and... Uh, a written constitution, and it's still got huge problems with its Supreme Court and with people who are trying to um, undermine it. So those are the essences of what's really going on. But, and here, for example, we can look at France as, 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 as a parallel. The protests in themselves have now created their own momentum in which other grievances, largely on the opposing side, have started to come out. For example, um, a lot of uh, religious people the ultra-Orthodox, um, have an exemption from serving in the military, whereas everybody else is meant to serve in the military. Um, so there is a question of burden sharing, because at the same time, in order to get people to, basically, the, the ultra-Orthodox political parties, and the only reason that they exist is the one I'm about to say, which is they have no interest in the state at all, they want it for its money, then various parties on both sides when they came to form coalitions have usually, you know, literally paid them off by giving them huge amounts of money for their own um, school systems, for exempting them from the military, for giving subsidies to them for uh, um, studying the Torah rather than working, etc., etc., etc. This has also become a very, very big issue now in protests People want more burden sharing. They don't want anymore to just subsidize a group of people who are effectively undermining them. 
So go to France and you'll see that too. So as an historian, looking at these protests and these protest movements, is this a sea change? I mean, is it a sign of a crisis in democracies, in democratically ruled governments um, throughout, let's say, the West? Or is this normal and a normal expression of democracy and just the sort of thing that happens every once in a while? I think it's a combination of both. In other words, um, you can look, you know, the historian looks and says, well, look at the United States, 100 years after it was founded, um, it went into a civil war because it couldn't agree with itself. Um, you can look at a variety of examples such as those. Um, so, yes, there is something that is self-correcting in democracies, which doesn't usually happen in other regimes where the regime corrects everybody who doesn't agree with it. Um, equally, however, I think that some of the areas in which democracy was meant to be self-correcting are no longer relevant. Partly the idea was when we talk about democracies that um, they were founded for states. We now live in an interconnected era in which I think it's, it's not the usual, oh, social media has ruined everything. No, but the sources of influence the sources of understanding have completely changed and we've become much more siloed in our democracies. Um, and you can't vote without information. And if you only get information about one thing, if your source of information is whatever your Facebook feed decides that you're going to see or whatever nice Mr. Google has used his algorithm to see what you've been Googling, etc., cetera, et cetera, um, that's the information you're going to use to vote. So our assumptions about democracy functioning always because everybody's going to put out there what it is that they want to put out there and the intelligent person will choose doesn't function in the same way as it did before. Another problem that we're all facing is that democracies, I think, were very much conceived of by working people, for working people, if you want to put it that way, in the sense that it was populists who participated in politics. It was people who worked for most of their lives who then went on to become politicians. They brought a lot of gravitas with that. They brought a lot of experience with that. And they connected well with audiences as a result of it. In many democracies now, um, politics has become a profession. You start it at school or you start it at university or you start somewhere particular and then you work your way up, you become an assistant, you're a researcher, you're a speechwriter, and then actually getting elected is not much more than the next stage up into uh, um, that particular profession. And that is very limiting because the profession functions for itself rather than for the populace because most people working in it don't understand the populace. But I also, I mean, I look at what these right-wing governments do, and they're trying to limit the democracy, right? They're trying to limit the checks and balances. They're specifically, they they don't want the system to stay democratic by yours or my definition of that. Is that new? Is that old? I mean, we've certainly seen right-wing movements come to power before. I mean, is that part of the definition of the right-wing, is that they want to reverse democracy? It's, it's absolutely that. However, there's usually been enough forces to counter that. In some cases, you can see, I think probably Latin America is a very good example, the repeated attempts at creating democracies and the repeated attempts of it being taken over. But nonetheless, um, you know, to, to, to completely uh, paraphrase and misquote Churchill, um, you know, democracy is an awful system, except all the others. And um, so one of the reasons you always have a reversion to democracy is that once people try the strong man, they suddenly realize, oops, 
the strong man works for himself. And it's usually a strong man. It's not a strong woman, but hey. Um, and um, I think the other thing, though, that we are seeing now, and that is different from previous generations, and to a certain extent relates, we come back to the interconnected world, is it's a much more complex world. Now, I think historically you saw that in the Industrial Revolution, when effectively people moved from a very one-dimensional life in which you um, you were poor in the countryside and then you were really poor when you moved to a town in order to work in a factory or a mill or something. And there was a huge amount of discontent. And this was expressed in various ways. Not least the problem with the discontent was that people didn't understand this new life. And I think we're suffering to a certain extent from that also in our current era. And that's why it's not entirely comparable to previous eras, which is, it's very complex. Everything has gone online. If you're an older person in the West, it's quite difficult if you're living in a digital society. How do you get the things that you want? How do you explain things? How do you access, you know, there's no banks anymore. There's no post offices anymore. Life is more complex. So one of the things that these right-wing parties offer is simplicity. Go back to Brexit and the idea of we don't want experts. Um, it's, it says it very, very simply, except that the problem is that you need the experts because life is complex. So we're seeing, I think, it's not so much as democracy working or not. We're seeing a completely different context in which we're expecting the old systems that were created for something else entirely to function within. So, of course, they need to be corrected. So how do you correct? Uh, what can you do in Israel, in France, in Poland that could bring democracy back in, given that the institutions and systems in place were built for a very different world? I think that Poland and Hungary, um, Poland and Hungary most probably just need to get rid of their strongmen. And then um, with a society beginning to talk to each other, which is, is it is actually happening there now, as a result of the repression in many ways of um, the Peace Party and the current government, which has been in power for two terms already, um, you are seeing there's more young people coming up saying, I don't like this. There's more middle class people coming up and saying, I don't like this. So I suspect if at a certain point... Um, one or the other of those were removed, you would, in, in Hungary and Poland, I mean, um, you would have the ability for the society to talk to itself as to what it wants. And I think that's absolutely key everywhere. If you don't allow the society to talk to each other, then you never get any way. Sometimes it's violent, like a civil war, but at other times you find other ways of doing it in, in a parliament, in, a, uh, um, in town squares, it doesn't particularly matter, in protests. Um, but it, it has got to happen. Currently, one of the reasons Israel is so extreme is that there's, there's a complete division. Um, I mean, I've heard lovely stories that, you know, sort of uh, um, one town in which there were um, protests, there was 
uh, a much bigger um, anti-government protest, a much smaller pro-government protest, but the pro-government protest had a much better sound system and they were shouting at each other. But at a certain point, the pro-government uh, protesters shouted across to the anti-government protesters to the effect that they were about to sing the national anthem. Ah, so the government, the anti-government protesters says, great, put the music on. So they all sang the national anthem together, then went back to shouting at each other. As long as there's some form of connection, I do think that you you come up with solutions. Israel, for example, is going to have to come to some decisions about either creating a constitution or changing the electoral system and or creating, because the current electoral system is absolutely uh, proportional and therefore favours um, whoever gets uh, um, just a marginal um uh, uh, preference. Because if you look at the results of the last election in Israel, the difference between the two blocks was 30,000 votes. But it translated into 64 seats because that's a coalition he managed to build um, for the Netanyahu government and a smaller one. Maybe Israel will do, will create a second chamber. I don't know. But the institutions in Israel were created in 1948. And for a population that was under 2 million, you've now got uh, um, including the Arab population, um, you have, um, I think, nearly 10 million people. So, of course, you have to change something. There's no way that that's going to work at the same time. In France, it's clear, France is the most honest about these things. France announces to everybody it's on its fifth republic. It's already tried four other systems. It's on its fifth one. It doesn't seem to be working particularly well. So it's probably going to go for a sixth sometime in the next, I would say, Five years, probably, because currently it's really, you know, deadlocked. There is always forms of self-correction if you seek to do that. What happens with strong men is that they seek to make sure that nobody can correct anything and that therefore the only way to do that is repression. And people always ultimately react to repression. So how worried should I be that I hear no stories of polls on opposite sides of protests, of French people on opposite sides of protests, of Americans on opposite sides of protests pausing to sing an anthem together? Um, I can't even imagine that in the U.S. case, right? I just it kind of like I cannot visualize. <laughs> it's completely it's beyond me to visualize the notion of these two groups of people agreeing on anything, right? I think it very much depends on the context in which you wish to sit down and talk. Probably if you went to small town America, you would find that a lot of people are talking to each other and they're usually not going out to protest also. Um, I think um, this has come up before that, you know, this is a, a structural protest as opposed to an issue protest. In Israel, I'm saying, you know, sort of it's about the very meaning of what it is you want the state to be. So far in the US, my perception, I'm completely open to being corrected on this, is that um, you people go out on issues, but they don't go out on the very meaning of the country. Maybe that's what happened on the 6th of January 2021, and nobody came out on the other side to protest it. Maybe they would have, it would have been better if there would have been, you know, the counter protest or something like that. But I think it was such a horrific event for everyone that it was impossible to, 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 to imagine it in one way or another. I think in Poland, we're going to see at the election, there's an election coming up this, this autumn. I think we're going to see quite a difficult one because I think that in many places, um, what incumbent strongmen do is also attempt to change 
um, electoral uh, processes to favour them. So in the US, for example, we've seen that, you know, you saw gerrymandering. In the UK, there's lots of gerrymandering. It's more difficult in countries which are not divided off into regions like that. So then they try and cheat at um, the election, uh, you know, at the ballot box, as it were. But I do think you're going to see pretty strong protests out there. I think you're going to see the other side, even if they don't get in, have a lot to say about which way the government is going. And to be fair to the polls, they do go out quite a lot. They've had various, over the abortion rights, they were very big demonstration. Okay, it didn't work. But it would be unjust to the polls to say that they weren't big demonstrations. Um, in, in France, I think that those who are in favour of the pension reform would be afraid to go out because I think they would find themselves very much um, under attack. But I think that, um, you know, in each country, you have to find the medium in which you can debate. One of the things that has happened, I think, a lot in modern life is that we all use, I come back again to the internet, to debate. We don't do it out on the street in the same way, which is why what's happening in countries like Israel and France is so exceptional because you are coming out on the street. So I want to hear kind of just your sense of physically being in Israel and watching these protests. I mean, did anything strike you as different from what you see when you're in Europe? Are these, are the, are the protests different or is it really, ha, has the protest, uh, protest technology kind of become a global one? Um, I was at one protest uh, in January and I was at another one um, now, as you, you point out. First of all, just the sheer size has changed. So it was quite big already in January, but, you know, sort of in um, early April, it was, you know, significant, you could say. Uh, and this is in Tel Aviv and it's happening all over the country. Very good mood. Um, it's not just a question of singing Hatikva or not. One of the things that has happened is... Um, and this, I think, is also starting to happen slightly in other countries. Um, we've been, the, the, there's a lot of flags everywhere carried in these marches. Now, for Israelis, that is an exception because the sense is that for the past 30 years, in an increasing manner, um, then it has been the, the right of center parties that have appropriated the flag and patriotism. So again, one of the issues that's happening is that this is taking back the flag. This is taking back patriotism. And as I say, I think I am beginning to see that slightly in other countries too, that, you know, sort of, you can't carry on the whole time you right-wing parties telling us that we don't love our country. We do love our country. We just don't love it the way you want it to be loved. We think other things. I mean, that's huge in the U.S. and sometimes controversial. It's also the Russian opposition used to make a big point of carrying the Russian flag that, I mean, first of all, the Russian opposition no longer gets to protest in Russia. So now they carry blank pieces of paper. And secondly, the flag, you know, has become it, basically they've lost the fight over the flag effectively, right? The, the government has won it, but it's a really interesting dynamic. I remember being at a protest in the United States where there was somebody carrying a very, very large U.S. flag in front of us. I mean, so large that it was kind of getting in our faces. And one of my friends said that she found it offensive. And I said, I think it's effective, right? I mean, it's... But, you know, she felt like this, we're protesting against that. And I said, well, obviously not that guy, right? Absolutely. So I think there has been this, you know, sort of process of, 
you know, redefining states in more uh, nationalist terms, vis-a-vis flags and anthems. And, you know, sometimes you see it revoltingly like, you know, make America great again. I mean, what is that, if not the most, you know, sort of extreme uh, um, definition of that? Or, or, you know, Brexit again is a very good example. But um, I think that the, um, the, the attempt to retake the symbols of state and say that, um, we don't agree with the way you have redefined our state has been very strong in Israel. Um, at another level, because this has been going on for 15 weeks, it's already sort of rather structured. And indeed, you know, there's a children's corner. There is, so for people who have no babysitter, they can bring their children and somebody will look after them. And, uh, um, there is a, um, a psychological corner. Is this affecting you very badly? You can come and talk to a shrink and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But on the whole, um, very good atmosphere usually. It happens on a Saturday night, which is, um, you know, at the end of the Sabbath in Israel. And I think a lot of people just go to friends and have a drink afterwards too. So the atmosphere so far is good. Yeah, I remember in the U.S. after the election of Donald Trump, the joke that was running around was protests are the new brunch, because that's what you would do on weekend, you know, on Sunday afternoon, right? Absolutely. Uh, get so. up in the morning, go to a protest, feel good about yourself, you know, but accomplish nothing. And maybe that's what I might close with. Do you think this will, you say Israel needs to do these things. Will these protests cause Israel to develop the constitution? Will it bring down the Netanyahu or will they peter out? Um, I think it will do all of the above. So um, it's very important, again, to understand that part of the, I mean, a significant reason that events are happening in the way they're happening now is that Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, um, has got a long running trial against him for fraud and a variety of other issues as a sitting prime minister. And that one of the reasons he so desperately needs the judicial system, and especially the Supreme Court reformed, is that that is perceived to be his best bet of getting out of um, this trial. Uh, just get rid of the judiciary and then you won't have a trial, you know, sort of. Um, I don't think it's going to work. I think that if this continues, um, the, the protests may get to a worse stage, but I don't think most Israelis will put up uh, with that. He is apparently extremely surprised by the strength of the protest because Israelis, again, like center people in many countries, you could say, um, because they haven't actively gone out to a protest, then right-wing parties in a lot of countries just assumed that they were lazy or didn't care or were too busy making money or something like that. So the fact that so many people have come out for so long has been a shock to him personally, apparently, and to um, his supporters. So I think that it won't, ultimately it won't pass. Ultimately, there will need to be a new constitution, though the perception is that whilst, you know, people should be getting together from all sides to start thinking about it, um, then they should also not do it in this current parliament because this current parliament is too complex and it won't pass uh, um, that kind of constitution. So I think all of the above, we're probably in for an extremely hot summer, literally and figuratively in the Middle East. But um, I would have thought that probably by the autumn we'll see um, I think oh, I should say one more thing. His cohorts will attempt to pass this change, in my opinion. 
um, and uh, this revolution or whatever it is, and that will lead to an escalation. I have no doubt about that. Okay, one last question, because it follows from this point. When protests like this take place in the Western Balkans, when they take place in African countries, when they take place in Latin America, folks like Crisis Group uh, write reports and analysis and worry about it and suggest that other countries do things, sanctions, policies, you know, very, very stern demarches. But, you know, in this case, I think the United States has commented uh, on some of what has been going on in Israel. But for the most part, we let the Israelis and the Poles and the French fight it out internally. Um, and the Americans, for that matter, although Crisis Group did uh, warn about the risks of election violence in, in the United States. Um, so perhaps we're adapting. But should we be? I mean, is this something the rest of the world ought to not just be writing about, but doing things about? Or is this normal, a normal part of democracy? And as long as it's not, in fact, violent, everybody else should keep their mouth shut? Um, I think that probably the latter, because if not, I would have gone by the rule of that, by the grace of God, go us all, um, as we've been discussing over the past uh, um, uh, uh, half hour, that one of the reasons I think that the reaction has been relatively muted has been precisely that, that I'm not sure any regime feels absolutely secure anymore. Any democracy feels absolutely secure. I think if it deteriorates, of course, there's much to say. Um, Netanyahu is not unaware of this. He's tried to make visits to Italy and to London, um, found the demonstrators there too. Um, and it was perceived that these were, these were very short visits that were perceived by many in Israel to be shopping visits that his wife wanted. Um, but he's not unaware of his isolation. Nobody's reaching out to Netanyahu and saying, um, other than Poland and Hungary, um, oh, good guy, you know, sort of poor thing having the street out against you. But they are all watching, I think, um, with a leery eye is, is where I would put it. You're also asking another question is, when should you intervene in another country's business? Um, which is a very difficult one, too. Look at the European Union, which has actually got legitimacy to interfere in other countries' business, but unless they actually threaten with money, in the case of Hungary and Poland, nothing has happened. Um, democracy at the end of the day is a self-enforced system. If you don't want democracy, there is a limit to how much you can have it from the outside. And the perception is so far that Israelis want democracy. I think if that perception changes, we may see something else. Thank you so much. I think on that note, uh, we are going to close this out. Ilana, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You can find uh, more of Alana's work online. Uh, you can also buy her books at your favorite independent bookstore. Uh, the best-selling one of those is Utility of Force, which she co-authored with um, General Sir Rupert Smith. And it has a relatively brand new 2019 second edition. Uh, so I commend that to you. You can also read her shorter work. She uh, writes and has written for Politico, Project Syndicate, Haaretz, The Guardian, Financial Times, The New York Times. I mean, I, I could go on. But um, you really should uh, check out her writing. She is just as pithy and thoughtful in print as she is uh, when you listen to her. And if you do want to listen to her some more, she, I again, highly recommend her podcast, uh, Wise Women Leaders for Wise. 
Um, you can also read Crisis Group's work on Israel, the Middle East, and the countries of the European Union, and of course, the United States. Uh, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can follow us on uh, Twitter and other social media. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. I'm at Olya Olaker most places. I'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vigursky, our coordinator, Heiko Schaub, uh, for all the work that they do in making sure that I show up with a recording device and things to say each time we do this. But my biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. If you have thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. Leave us reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure you don't miss an episode, please don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace. If you have not done so already, we are on all the main podcast platforms. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.